I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Today on The Naked Scientist, we have gathered together the brightest and the brainiest to answer your science questions. Coming up, why ants are stealing toenail clippings? What is between your internal organs? And will flexible mobile phones ever become reality? I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Well, good evening and welcome. I'm Chris Smith, and let's meet those bright and brainy people who are answering your science questions this evening. Georgia Mills, you are normally one of the producers of our programme, but actually you're wearing a different hat today. Yeah, I'm not feeling so bright and brainy, I have to say, but yeah, I studied zoology, so I'll be fielding any animal questions that come in. So Georgia Animal Instincts Mills. (laughs) Andrew Norton is a space scientist. He's from the Open University. Uh, What can you tell us about, uh, say, a hot fact about the sun, Andrew? Well, I'm always never cease to be amazed by the fact that you could fit a million Earths inside the sun. I think that just helps us realise how utterly insignificant the Earth really is. And how hot and big the sun is. Absolutely. Also, we have uh, climate change scientist Doug Crawford-Brown. I suppose it must have been an interesting week for you. It's been a, a horrifying week in, it, for climate science anyway, with Donald Trump being elected, which doesn't worry me that he's a climate skeptic. What, what does worry me is the, the, the sort of lack of concern for scientific evidence back behind that position. Also here is Peter Cowley. Peter's our tech expert. And Peter, when you're not doing The Naked Scientist, what do you normally do? What I normally do, I I spent about 30 years being an entrepreneur. In the last seven, eight, nine years, I've been a very active tech investor and all kinds of technology, not very much biotech. So if you ask me a biological question, I will have no clue, but lots of engineering tech. So I've got a massive portfolio of 50 companies. Your best investment to date? The best investment to date... um, Oh, that's a difficult one, isn't it, really? Because I, I, I mustn't name names. Okay, your best exit, because that <laughs> puts you exit, off the hook, doesn't the it? The best exit so far is a uh, company here in Cambridge came out in engineering labs doing very small gas sensors, $1 gas sensors for wearables and mobile phones. Your worst investment? The worst investment? I've got some of those. They're on my website, actually. I'm very transparent about what my failures are. So if you go to petercallage.org, you can see them. I mean, I was just raising this point because at the end of the day, people see things like Dragon's Den and they see people put money into things. But what they may not realise is that people like yourself have to invest in a lot of a lot of things in order to occasionally back a winner because it, it is a gamble. Exactly. About half of all startups that we invest in will fail. About another third or so will probably turn into a business that doesn't really grow. You only get one or two out of the 10, out of 10. So if you just invest in two or three, the chance of you actually making money is zero. 
Right, let's go straight to the jugular. Got a question from Graham. I saw your article about how a man would weather in an orca's digestive system. I was wondering about snakes. Considering the anaconda is one of the biggest snakes and could swallow a human, what injuries would a human suffer in the process of being ingested? Would they be crushed by the esophagus muscles? If they could breathe, how long would they last before being digested? Would it be possible to force the snake to vomit? And throw up a human. What do you think, Georgia? It's a great question. I hope no one's eating. So, yeah, the anaconda, one of the biggest snakes. It's actually the heaviest snake, not quite the longest. It lives in the uh, uh, around the Amazon in uh, South America. So, what would happen if you got eaten? One. So, there's a number of problems. Firstly, anaconda is not going to want to eat you. Most likely, they humans are just a bit too big for them. There's not many cases of an anaconda actually going for a human. I think most of the cases are anaconda researchers getting a bit too cheeky and uh, getting snapped at. But they they have been documented going for children and very small humans. Uh, So first off, probably not going to want to eat you. Secondly, they will constrict you. They it's what they do before they eat anything. Eating something while it's still alive is dangerous for them. So they will wrap around you and they will crush you so hard that your blood will cease to pump and it won't get to your brain and you'll pass out and die very, very quickly. And they, they will know you're dead because they can monitor your heartbeat. But for the question's sake, provided this anaconda does decide it wants to eat you, it does decide it doesn't want to crush you first, what will happen then? So then the snake's incredible jaws, they're not actually fused together. There are four separate parts and they're elastic. So it can sort of stretch its mouth really wide and sort of crawl over you, going chomp, chomp, chomp. And uh, when it, it does... Go again? Chomp, chomp, chomp. <laughs> that, that is a, a guess, actually. <laughs> but, um, so then it will um, use saliva, a lot of saliva to lubricate you, as it were. So you might actually drown. That might happen to you first. Provided you don't drown, you sort of go in, inside down the snake. Your shoulders would probably be too broad, so it would probably have to break your shoulders. Then you're in there. You're going to need air. You're not going to have any air. You'll suffocate. Provided you do have air, then what happens is that the acid and the enzymes will start to digest you. And it's, uh, it's hard to say how long this would take to actually kill you. Some scientists had an experiment where they, I think an anaconda ate a crocodile. They scanned it and they found that all the soft tissues were gone within about three days. So that's quite fast acting stuff. And if you think about how tough the skin of a crocodile is as well, it doesn't bode well for us soft, squishy humans. So did they give the crocodile to the snake and say, eat that and make it snappy? (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Provided all these other things haven't killed you, will the snake regurgitate you? So I actually found a video on YouTube where this guy had his goats had been eaten by a snake and he squeezed them back out. <laughs> Not intact, presumably. They were definitely dead. But he, he managed to just, this poor snake was just kind of writhing around like, oh no. And he squeezed these goats back out and they're useless to him. So he may as well let the anaconda have them. I suppose he could have eaten them afterwards. Yeah, I true. I'm the, yeah, a bit gross eating a, a snake vomit meal. Can, so can snakes actually vomit then? That was the last yeah, point of question. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's dangerous for them to do it so I don't think they do it very often because it takes a lot of energy and a lot of time and all of that time they're regurgitating, they're vulnerable to being... Um, I think the same applies to me, actually. To <laughs> yeah. OK, so I think that's a no, really, for the anaconda. I mean, there are some stories of pythons eating kids, aren't there? I mean, there are one or two stories yeah, of that. Yeah, people love spreading these stories when they're not true. And I found several stories about a snake eating different people, and it was all the same photo. So 
actually documented cases are very low. Georgia, thank you very much. Right, Wayne has been floating around with this heady question. If I could hover in the air, totally unattached to the earth, and I'm hovering, let's say, two metres from a building on its eastern side, would the building crash into me as the earth rotates? Andrew? The short answer is no, but I think you want a longer answer. We've got to understand, of course, the the Earth is rotating. And if we take, uh, say, the equator of the Earth, that's about 40,000 kilometres all the way around. And the Earth rotates once in 24 hours. So if you're on the equator, you're moving at about 1,670 kilometres per hour. And here a little bit further north we're moving a little bit slower than that but we're nonetheless moving very fast as the earth rotates so if you do decide to hover with your jetpack or whatever it may be then you've already got that sort of sideways motion whether or not you're you're hovering or whether you're standing on the earth so you and the buildings will continue moving sideways east to west at uh, at that same speed so uh, no the building wouldn't crash into you you and the building would keep moving keep rotating around the earth uh, with with the speed that you've got i guess what you're thinking of maybe is if you could somehow take away that rotational speed that you've got by giving yourself uh, you know an equivalent speed in the opposite direction then then you know that could well do it but you'd have to work very hard to to give yourself that extra that extra speed in the opposite direction to cancel out the rotation that you start with a flight time to america is different in duration to a flight time from America, though, for the reason the Earth is turning, to an extent, isn't it? It's partly because the Earth's rotating, partly also it's affected by the uh, you know the high-altitude winds that either give you a tailwind or a headwind on the plane. But, yeah, the rotation of the Earth does make a difference to that. This week on The Naked Scientist, we're answering your science questions. Didn't manage to get yours in in time? Don't worry. Send them along now to chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll do our best to get them recorded in time for our next Q&A show. For now, though, we'll be answering what the consequences of Noah's floods would have been and why dogs don't catch colds. First up, though, Doug, here's a question for you from Lex. My ex-military husband told me he was taught in training when the cows in a field lay down that bad weather is on its way and to find shelter... Is there any truth in this? What do you think, Doug? Yeah, well, this this again goes into those sort of myth categories. Um, it, it, it does have some scientific basis. I mean, cows do, well, all animals sense when air pressure is changing. And when you're getting ready to have rain, you, you usually are accompanied by some sort of a, a change in the pressure. Um, however, there are much more compelling reasons why cows lie down. They're not feeling well, they're tired and so forth. I would doubt that a cow lying down would be very good indicators that, that rain is coming along. Are there actually any indicator species that we can rely on that predict the weather, not just cows, but other things in the environment that that do tell us, aha, this is going to happen climatically or something? Yeah, I mean, various birds, bats, for example, well, not not strictly a bird, but uh, bats are a reasonably good indicator that you're getting ready for for bad weather anyway. A a, a low low and high pressure zone is about to to collide. Um, But most of the animals are responding to to many other things. Um, Air pressure tends to be the one that, that most most animals respond to because they've got sensors in their in their ears, let's say. Not exactly, but in their ears. What do the bats and birds actually do? Because I remember reading in Asterix and Obelix cartoons that oh, always say... That's a well-known scientific <laughs> source of information. Well, Obelix would always say, birds are flying low, we shall have rain. Is yeah. that is that what they do? Um, no, they, they tend to simply get more agitated and, and to fly around more. So you start to see large swirls of sparrows, for example, that are swirling about, like in horror movies, you know, for example. And that, that usually indicates that there's a storm 
coming uh, along the horizon. But it's not a it's not a good indicator. I mean, I, I would not bet my retirement fund on <laughs> on these animals' behavior. Now, I'm glad everyone chuckled at that because Mo wants to know, people have different types of laugh from insistent giggling to bouts of laughter and tee-hee-hee. Everyone seems to have different types of laugh. This question is to do with those different types of laugh that get established for a person. Is that through nature or nurture? And could a person change the way he or she laughs if they practice hard enough or is it involuntary? Uh, let's have a little laughing contest. So, Andrew, give us a demo then. How, how do you... Uh, is, that, is that real? Or... That's real. Uh, Peter? No, you need to tell me a joke. Come on. <laughs> I no, that's terrible, that laugh, wasn't it? <laughs> is that is that is that real? Or yeah, well, that, oh, that, that that's real, but that's sort of my, my, my evil laugh. Well, that was, <laughs> is that the laugh that when someone tells you that climate change isn't happening? Yeah. There you go. Right, OK, we got one. Georgia? Um, uh... You know one of my lame, one of my lame jokes I made earlier? Oh. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay. So everyone does seem to have a different laugh. I know I haven't haven't done a, a laugh. Yeah, there you go. There's a bit of a laugh. I, I think it is a very personal thing, and I think it's a habit. I don't know. That, I don't think there's any straightforward answer to this question. Um, certainly, it's something I think you probably can practice, and I have heard some real screechy people. Weird, I mean, you must all have heard people who with this kind of laugh from hell. There, there was one woman, I, I remember I was at this um, holiday place and then there was this lady with this laugh that sort of went she just sort of almost sounded like she was being strangled so she would laugh and then there'll be this <gasps> noise between bouts of laughter and and I'm sure that it must be just a rehearsal thing you get you get into a habit of laughing that particular way but I, I don't know for sure but I suspect if you did practice you could certainly in the same way as you can change your accent and the, the way you speak you could certainly I think change the way that you laugh. And laughter is such a strange thing. Something to try at home that's really funny is to laugh but try not to smile. It's so strange because laughter is such an automatic reaction. If you try and just keep your face sad and then laugh, honestly, it's... Do you make yourself laugh doing it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the room will go into hysterics because it's such a weird thing to do. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like Father Christmas. It's really difficult. <laughs> Father Christmas has come early. <laughs> well, there you go. So send in some samples of your laughter and, and we'll play them on the programme and uh, you know, maybe the best one will win a prize. Now, we've got a mind-bending question for you now, Peter, from Chan. I was wondering whether it was possible to build a flexible smartphone with the technology we have today. Yes, lot, there's quite a lot of progress in that direction. But first of all, my first thought when I saw this question was... Um, why? You know, why do you want a flexible? Is that so you can sit on it? You might remember a few years ago, there was one of the big manufacturers had a problem with them bending in the back pockets. Is it because you could drop it and not worry about it? Why, why do you want it to be flexible? So that's the first point. But assuming it's because it's novel or something, there's some reason to do that. The next thing is, what is flexible? How thin does it have to be to be actually called flexible? Now, if you look at the, um, to answer some of that questions, look at the actual structure of a phone. Of course, the front is the a piece of glass or protection, which is then the touch screen and the display that can be made flexible some 20 years ago here in cambridge there was some technology that was invented within the university and a number of applications of that sort of printed displays so that's that's okay the next level back will be some sort of printed circuit board again that's been flexible for many years probably 30 40 years on that you'll have some chips those chips can't be flexible because they're made of silicon but they can be very very small so flexibility will allow that but the big issue is the battery um the the battery they're just getting to the point now where 
a battery with about which is only half a millimeter thick will bend up to 25 degrees so that doesn't sound like much flexibility and it's not very thick so it won't give much capacity so yes we're heading that way not quite sure why we're heading that way but we're heading that way but i can't i don't think you'll get to the sort of flexibility i imagine meaning which is sort of roll it up and put it in your pocket i was just thinking of harry potter they have the newspapers where all the things sort of show up and the headlines move along. Could that be possible? Yes, a display by itself is possible. There are flexible displays. I mean, they're getting to the point soon where you will be buying packaging on, say, a Coca-Cola or something bottle, which will vary depending who you are almost. So that's got the battery in there, that's got the display. It's the other elements of it, so it's very difficult to make that. But yeah. What will it will it change the price so that it'll deter you? If you're on a diet, Uh, it'll say, don't don't buy this because... (laughs) Price changing supermarkets. As you walk around a supermarket, there's no reason why the price shouldn't change depending on the, how much money you've got on your credit card. Well, that's what I was thinking. End. I can see this going this way potentially where, you know, you walk along and they think, oh, he looks like a sucker. We'll just put the price up to him so they know you're keen and you'll pay it. Shelf edge labelling. Yes, exactly that. There where must be some consumer go. laws against that though, surely. Why? I think uh, a company, a well-known company was doing that based on where you were. If the affluent, the more affluent your area, the higher the prices. But I think they got in trouble and it's no longer allowed. Yeah, much of my one of my sons is working for one of these consumer survey organisations now in London, which does 60,000 people scan all their shopping every week and then photograph their, their receipts. And they, what and photograph said, their lunch and put it on Instagram well, as far as that's I can tell. <laughs> this is for this one, in return for something, some sort of gifts. But the point is that they, actually the pricing around the country doesn't vary nearly as much as you'd expect. That the people in the, in the less well-off areas than the people in Surrey, <laughs> sorry, anybody from Surrey, <laughs> are paying the same price. Right, let's move it on then. So, Georgia, um, we've got a bit of a toe-curling question, actually, that's uh, coming for you. It's um, from Chester, who says, My wife clipped her fingernails outdoors on our patio. Nice. A few minutes later, some small ants appeared and they carried off the clippings to their underground abode. The clippings were completely removed, uh, sometimes bigger than the ants carrying them. Can you explain what was going on? Um, well, firstly, might I suggest investing in a bin if you want to avoid this in future? I actually, I had a sounds look. Like on... he needs one. It sounds like he has a sort of yes, natural cleaning cleaning source. ants. Yeah. Well, actually, I looked um, I looked online, and there's quite a few people have noticed this. Um, people from all around the world are saying, "What is going on here? Why do ants really like toenails? It's a bit bit disgusting, really." So nails, they're made of a protein called keratin. Um, it's the same thing your hair is made of, and it's a, it's a protein, so there is um, nutrients in proteins. But the thing about keratin is it's notoriously difficult to digest. There's only a few species of insects that we know can digest keratin, and ants, as far as I can tell, aren't one of them. So what are they doing with it? And it could be that these ants are making a terrible mistake, because if you think about your fingers, you're touching food a lot, there's dead skin cells under them, there's bacteria. It could be that there's a smell that they're very attracted to, so they think, oh, here's a nice bit of food, taking it back, and then they're like, oh no, we can't eat this, what have we done? <laughs> We've wasted so much time. There's one theory I read that was quite interesting. So something we know that can digest keratin is fungus, and a lot of ants are known to have these... Uh, relationships with fungus where they kind of grow it like farmers and then they eat the fungus. Um, So it could be that they're putting the nails on the fungus, the fungus is getting energy from it and then the ants are benefiting from that. But these funguses only exist in the Americas and I think people have been reporting this from all over the world. So it must be something else going on. And I think some people have reported that ants have been seen harvesting keratin from dead bodies as well. So 
maybe there's a PhD in this. Maybe they are digesting the keratin and there is some, some process we don't know about yet. Well, when I was wandering around in uh, Zambia, in the Lawangwa forest, uh, there, there were lots of remains of animals dotted about, you know, horns and things, and they all did have holes in them. And I asked the guide, you know, what have made these holes in these bits of... Because the horns of animals are keratin, aren't they? And he said, well, actually, certain moths will come in and lay eggs on the horns because the moths, in the same way as they eat your clothing in your cupboard, that's why you get holes from clothing moths, uh, they come in and, and they do have the ability to break down mm. and digest these horns. But that wasn't ants. It clearly wasn't, wasn't ants. Peter? Yeah, no, uh, keratin's also in hair, isn't it? Is yes, right? which is why it's a very bad idea for you to eat balls of your so own hair. So are they, but are the ants interested in hair? I haven't found, I did, I did actually not? search that yeah. and apparently not, but the, the keratin in your fingernails and the keratin in your hair are different structures, so maybe that's okay. a bit It'd be pretty it. hard to comb, wouldn't it, if it was the... <laughs> no, no, let's not go down. That really would be a tough hairstyle day, bad hair day, wouldn't it? Right, this is a, a, a biblical question now. It's actually about Noah's flood. I think this is probably one for you, Andrew. A Christian told me that it covered the tops of mountains, but apart from the difficulty of climbers breathing at 29,000 feet, wouldn't the water pushing the air up higher result in reducing the density of the atmosphere? The, the first problem, I think, is that the amount of water in the atmosphere is really very tiny. It's only about, I think it's one thousandth of one percent of the total water budget of the Earth. So if all that water in the atmosphere fell to Earth, it would only cover the surface to a depth of, I don't know, two or three centimetres, something like that. So wouldn't be enough to cover the, you know, to the tops of mountains. If you could somehow flood the Earth to the, to the depth such that all the mountains were covered, then I guess we'd be in a sort of a water world planet. The, the atmosphere would then sit on top of that. But, uh, you know, there's no reason why the, the, uh, the density of the atmosphere would get any lower maybe your questioner was was thinking about you know additional gravity of the sun or the moon pulling on it but on on the scale of the solar system that extra few thousand feet uh is not going to make any difference to the the, the pull of gravity on uh, on on the atmosphere so we all just just be swimming around but breathing just the same there have been times in the past though when the earth has been a lot wetter hasn't there Doug because if you go back 30 million 40 million years or so to the Eocene it was much much warmer and we had no north pole didn't we Yes, I mean, there lots of times when the Earth has been wetter, almost always having to do with, with changes of temperature. And in fact, we go through this cycle every every few tens of thousands of years of wetter and warmer and then and cooler and drier, drier temperatures. Now, you were just speaking there, Doug. Uh, we'll carry on in the same sort of theme with this question from Rowan. Is the world polluted beyond redemption? How much time do we have until climate change distinctly inconveniences us? Roughly till the end of Donald Trump's uh, residency, I'd say, isn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, I, 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 first thing I'll say is, uh, is we just don't know. So either on the IPCC or on the on the UK uh, Climate Change Risk Assessment Committee, um, we don't know the exact timing of this. It's it's probably something around twenty fifty to twenty eighty, somewhere in that range. There are some people, even in the scientific community, who think we're already there. We're already seeing um, uh, in, inconvenience. In, in the weather. I, I don't happen to be one of those people. I do happen to be one of the people who think that by 2050 and 2080, we'll really start thinking about this. So I'm already making a list of people who have been climate deniers so that in 2050 and 2080, I can roll that list out and say, whatever were you thinking of? But of course, most of them are about my age and they'll be dead by, by that time. So I'll have, I'll have no You're clearly a glass half full man, aren't you? Yeah, but, yeah. Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering, linking back to the last question as well, if, if the 
ice caps were to melt completely, what what change would that make to the global sea level? Well, it raises it by by hundreds of meters. Hundreds of meters. Hundreds of meters. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you you flood almost all the coastal coastal areas. Of course, not the not the North Pole because that's floating ice, which means yeah. it's already yeah, displaced. It's, it's displaced yeah. its own mass already, so that's not yeah. going to change a lot. But what's on Greenland? I mean, that Greenland mm. alone adds potentially quite a big rise is, in sea level. Just is, Greenland, yeah. doesn't yeah, it? It's tens of meters. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And the Antarctic's interesting. I, I read a paper where they were actually looking at the gravitational effect of having that much mass. Even though in um, in the Antarctic the, the ice is on land, so mm. it's not displacing water, it is nonetheless gravitationally active, so it attracts a big bulge of water around the bottom of the planet, holding the water down there, so it's not washing around up here, and therefore we have artificially lower levels of sea than we would otherwise have were that to be released. And if we melt that, obviously then that water is going to redistribute and we'll, we'll see higher sea levels. Georgia? Trump wants to build a wall between USA in Mexico, if a wall that big, could you just build one around Greenland and just keep all the all the water also, in there? W- w- Mexico, by the way, has said they're going to build a wall to keep Trump out of Mexico. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the carbon footprint of that concrete? Because forty percent, isn't it, of CO two emissions worldwide are just making cement? Yeah, I mean that, that that's right. There, there, there's a large carbon footprint of making cement. However, cement, when put into buildings and so forth, then reabsorbs carbon dioxide. So about half of that will be reabsorbed during the uh, the, the process it's of still making run something. The yeah, I have the no idea how big place. the carbon footprint is of, a, of the Mexican I'm, wall. Maybe someone should ask Donald that. If you have a question or you know the answer to the carbon footprint for Mr. Trump's wall, uh, we'd love to know. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. It is The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith, and with me are astronomer and physicist Andrew Norton from the Open University, zoologist Georgia Mills, tech guru Peter Cowley, and also a climate expert Doug Crawford-Brown is with us. Now, Peter, uh, Pillay doesn't want investment, but he does have a tech question for you. How does Bluetooth work? Could it be harmful to us if our phones are continually Bluetoothing? Yes, how does Bluetooth work? Um, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, there's a very complicated answer to that, which we won't go into now. But the, in principle, it's it's the same as any other form of um, wireless-based communication, same as Wi-Fi, same as mobile communications, where something's transmitting one end and what something's receiving the other end. Uh, unlike a radio or television where the receiver doesn't transmit back again, it does. So they're talking to each other the whole time. It uses the same frequency as, as Wi-Fi, which is 2.4 gigahertz, which is a, a band that's open to the whole world. But the big difference between uh, that and Wi-Fi and mobile comms is that the power is power output is very, very much less. So you take the call power of a modern smartphone, the absolute maximum it can transmit at is, is 2 watts, and it's usually about 250 to 500 milliwatts, so that's quarter to half a watt. And Bluetooth is about 1 to 2.5 milliwatts, so it's about 250 times less. Now, there's some interesting statistics here, which I think those with a medical bent, i.e. Chris, will be quite interested in. Apparently, that if the, um, the brain will get damaged if there's a, at least a 4-degree increase in temperature... And if you're on the phone for 20 minutes, your ear increases by – this is research that's been done, so don't worry, I'm not making it up. ear increases by about 0.3 degrees centigrade, and the brain just inside the ear by 0.15 degrees centigrade. And that will stay stable then. It's not going to increase for every 20 minutes, honestly. <laughs> Once you've had a four-hour call, Cumulative. you just go. <laughs> so, um, and just out of interest, the other way around, some people may know that if you type a certain number in on the phone, you can actually measure the signal strength wherever you are. And that works out at home, my home, where I get two bars, about a billionth of a watt. So the amount of 
power coming from the local cell transmitters very, very small. So to finish answer the question, um, Bluetoothing very much less power than mobile phone. Of course, it's on, as he says, it's on the whole time, but it's not on the whole time. The only time when it will be transmitting back and forth, or certainly one direction, is when you've got you're listening to something, say a, an earpiece uh, in your ear, which is then Bluetoothing, which at the same time. Otherwise, it's occasionally polling, and this polling might be, which means asking, checking if anything's out there perhaps once a second or something like that. So there's very, very little power there that's uh, being transmitted. So don't worry. Uh, now, Georgia, one for you. Heath has uh, sent this in. I'm here with Bertie, our one-year-old flat coat retriever, who is very lively. He's a dog with a good sense of humour, um, who likes nothing better than to uh, run and swim in icy lakes and come home uh, cold and wet and muddy and roll on the sofa. Or best of all, your white duvet colour. Um, my question is, um, how come dogs don't catch cold? Um, and how come we don't seem to be any the worse um, for a uh, dog lick either? Hello, Heath. Hello, Bertie. Um, so there's a few things there. How come dogs don't catch colds? Well, they can get something very similar to a cold with similar symptoms to us, but they cannot catch our equivalent of a cold. So the virus that affects us is very specific and will only really attack us. We won't be able to transfer it to dogs and vice versa. It won't come back the other way. So you can't catch a cold off your dog. And then, so why does he get in these lakes and and, uh, not get a cold? So swimming in an icy lake in itself will not give you a cold. You need to come into contact with a virus to actually come down with it. Swimming in icy lakes can harm your immune system, so it might make you more likely to catch the cold, but it won't give you one. So why don't dogs seem to get ill that often? Well, firstly, they can't tell us when they are ill. Do you know what they say if they do? Are they feeling rough, Chris? (laughs) Saw that one coming. (laughs) Know me too well. (laughs) Um, And the other thing is, if you think about how many people you bump into in a day on your commute, at work, at home, so many people, dogs do not have that that level of interactions with other dogs. There's not enough of them for these diseases to proliferate that much. And in fact, one of the diseases like a cold that a dog can get is kennel cough, so-called because they often get it when they're in kennels where a lot of them are in the same place. So the fact that Bertie isn't in a kennel, he's free to enjoy these icy lakes and probably will be fine. We published an article on The Naked Scientist a few years back now. It was called Can My Dog Give Me Diarrhea? Because people are actually looking at the viruses that cause diarrhea in people noroviruses are very common causes of diarrhea they cause millions of cases in humans but dogs have their own forms of noro that they call khaleesi viruses and there is some evidence that dogs if you recover dog poos from your pet and analyze it and people have done this study very dedicated scientists you can see that the same norovirus is in the person as in the dog but there's no evidence that the dog was symptomatic with the infection so it might be able to pick up its owner's infection but probably doesn't become symptomatic with it but people are looking they're doing a study to recover dog turds and compare them with owners with symptoms and see if there's any any evidence linking the two. Andrew, uh, one for you from Tuomo. In essence, the question is, if you travel very fast or close to a massive gravity, your time slows down. But does the ageing slow as well? And if so, how? Let me rephrase the question a little bit. Say we send a hypothetical Mr Smith close to a black hole to make a hypothetical podcast from there for one hour. In theory, as far as I've understood, once Mr Smith gets back to his home planet, everything around him has aged several years or something like that. But not Mr Smith. 
let's just disregard the travelling to and from this black hole. But how is it possible that Mr Smith's body has slowed its natural ageing process whilst on this trip? Do we have some internal body clock that slows everything down? Or does the increased gravity slow the cells and genes down? Andrew, what do you think? Well, Tuomo is absolutely right. There are two effects here. And of course, what we're talking about here is uh, relativity. We're talking about special relativity and general relativity. And as Einstein first figured out uh, over 100 years ago now, uh, if things move very fast, uh, then time will appear to time will slow down for the rapidly moving body, that's special relativity. And if you come close to a very massive object, such as a black hole, then time will slow down in a very strong gravitational field. That's general relativity. And these things have been been measured. They're absolutely, uh, you know, measured to the to the high precision that we can in, in many experiments. If we take uh, the example, say, of a, a GPS satellite, global positioning satellite, they're in orbit above the Earth at about 20,000 kilometres up. Now, they're orbiting the Earth, so they're going quite fast. And as a result of the speed that they're going, a clock on a GPS satellite will run slow by about seven microseconds in the course of 24 hours. Seven millionths of a second. Seven millionths of a second, yeah, in the course of 24 hours. Now, that's one effect. That's the special relativity effect. But, of course, the, gen- the uh, GPS satellite is also further away from the Earth than we are. So it's, it's further away from the, uh, the strong gravity of the Earth, if you like. And as a result of that effect, the clock on the GPS satellite would run fast by about 46 microseconds over the course of 24 hours. So these two effects are going in opposite directions. 40 seconds, 46 microseconds uh, fast due to the general relativity, 7 microseconds slow due to the special relativity. So there's a, you know, there's a net effect of one minus the other there. Um, as to you know, what is causing it. If, if it was a person on that satellite, you know, would their, their body clock feel those same effects? They would indeed. It, it's nothing to do with the body or the clock or the satellite. It's that time itself changes the rate that it flows. It doesn't necessarily flow forwards at the rate of one second per second. Uh, as a result of high speeds in special relativity or strong gravitational fields in general Well, it general does for relativity. you. You're, you're the person experiencing the the time effect so for you your watch continues to tick absolutely one, two three so you think that, that a year is gone i have a long but the people who are not in the same frame as you for them time is running faster that's exactly right chris yeah so it's it, it's a it's a real effect um but the the time as you experience it is is affected by by the speed that you're moving by the location that you're in relative to other people other other anything it doesn't need a person there um, but time doesn't always flow at the same rate. Peter? Yes, so if you take a, an airline pilot mm. who spends the whole time, you know, how many miles do they do in, in their lifetime? 100 million miles, that's, yeah. you know, 700 miles an hour. Any idea how many microseconds uh, younger is it they would be than the person who stayed on the ground? Well, again, there's both effects. They're, 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 you know, they're moving fast, so they're getting the slowing down due to special relativity, but they're also at high altitude, so they're getting the speeding up due to being further away from the gravity of the earth uh i i haven't worked it out but i would guess that for for people in aeroplanes it's it's probably a similar effect to to being on a on a satellite so uh one of the effects will outweigh the others that there will be a a certain distance above the earth at which the 
two effects would cancel out, actually. Um, There's another factor, which is that being that much higher up in the atmosphere, you are exposed to more incident radiation coming in from space. So people who pilot aeroplanes have higher rates of cancer and lymphomas, cancers of white blood cells. So actually there is an advanced ageing effect owing to radiation exposure, which outpaces the effect of relativity. Sorry to, to rain on your parade there, boys. Right, here's one for you, Peter. Now, this might be a potential money spinner for your business arsenal. Who knows? Um, This is a question from Jules, who wrote to us to say, could we install and use microwave technology for domestic central heating systems to heat the water and the radiators at home cost-effectively? Yes, thank you. Yeah, this this amused me quite a bit because I actually misread it to start with. And I said, could a microwave be used to heat a home? And I thought, hmm, we could put the microwave around the home. <laughs> it wouldn't look so good in the fireplace, though, would it? <laughs> no, well, actually, the other way around. But anyway, so, yeah, um, interesting idea, actually, because, of course, we use microwaves for heating uh, small items very, very effectively compared with putting them on the stove. But it isn't going to work for a number of reasons. First of all, um, based on sort of a consumer microwave, it's actually very inefficient. It's of the order of 60 or 70% efficient. That means it's of every kilowatt, it's 300 watts or so disappearing in heat. Secondly, um, the cost. Uh, my own gas boil at home is 91% efficient compared to the 60 or 70%, and it works out about £35 a kilowatt, uh, whereas a, a microwave will probably cost about 100 to 150 So it's about four times more expensive. Um, secondly, and a very big one here, at the moment with the consumer microwaves, the MTBF, which is the mean time between failures, is only about 2,000 hours. So 2,000 hours is about 12 weeks <laughs> of heating. <laughs> so you'd have to change your boiler, in inverted commas, every 12 weeks. So um, so boiler boiler's about of the order of 10 years, we hope. Well, probably a bit less nowadays, but that's 88,000 hours compared with 2,000 hours. Uh, and so it works out that because of that reliability, the capital costs about 100 times more. And then on top of that, <laughs> um, mains gas, which my boiler is, is about three or four times cheaper per kilowatt hour than electricity. So all in all, something very major would have to happen, disruptively changed in order to use microwave to heat the water in a house. Georgia? I have a question about the waste. You said there was about 30% wasted energy, but it was wasted as heat. Surely that's not a problem if you're trying to heat things. No, that's right. Yes, as long as, but of course it's it's heating in the environment where the microwave is. So you'd actually also have to cool, take water through that area as well. But you're right. That is converting electricity. Watching the weather forecast has made Martha ponder the following. How do cold fronts move faster than warm fronts if cold air molecules move slower than warm air molecules? Right. So, I mean, continuing in the same theme of there being a lot more going on here than one would normally think, um, uh, molecules move in for a lot of different reasons. I mean, they, they, they spin around, they, they, they rotate, they, they, they move laterally, meaning that they're uh, being pushed by air currents, for example. Um, uh, they have uh, diffusion, so they're moving in all sorts of directions. Cold air molecules do more, move more slowly by diffusion than do warm air molecules. But cold fronts also bring in closer isobars. In other words, you get a greater drop in pressure uh, per unit distance when you're dealing with with, uh, cold weather fronts. And what drives the wind is really what that pressure difference is, as as Darcy's Law shows, which is why the weather person always shows you the the isobars. And take a look at their map sometimes. You'll see the cold weather fronts have isobars that are are lines of equal pressure that are really close together, whereas the warm weather fronts have them far, far apart. What causes the the changes in pressure across the Earth's surface? Different, well, 
a lot of different things, but but ultimately it's all driven by uh, sunlight hitting the, the the surface of the Earth and hitting and being absorbed up in the atmosphere too. So ultimately, it's driven by the sun, and that gives energy to the atmosphere, which you know makes it, does, it and expand. Because it's non-homogeneous, it, it, it it's going to have different pressures at different places. Doug, thank you very much. Right, we've got uh, this question from Luke. What is in between the internal parts of the body? I'm assuming it can't be air or blood, which would get stale and prone to infection due to a lack of circulation. It's not going to be a vacuum, and I doubt that the organs are all jammed in with absolutely zero space. So what's in there? What do you reckon, Georgia? What's in there? <laughs> Jelly. <laughs> I mean, in my case, I think it's expanding amounts of flab. Um, but the answer is, we know the answer to this rather well, because we've actually got very good imaging modalities now. We've got CT scans, we have MRI scans, we have X-rays, and so we can see what's inside the body when it's in its intact state. And the answer is that actually there is no free gas inside your body unless you have a problem. If you do a chest X-ray on somebody, you can see where the gas is in their lungs and you can also see that the lungs go right out to the chest wall and there's no gas outside the lungs. Now, sometimes people get a condition called a pneumothorax and this is where the lung pops and you get air outside the lung and doctors looking at an an X-ray of the chest would see that there's a bubble of gas around the lungs and you can see that it's clearly where it shouldn't be. The same is true in the abdomen. The innards, if you actually look inside the abdomen... Actually, most of the stuff in there, your your guts and all the internal organs, they're all slippery and slimy and covered in water, but they're very closely packed in and sliding past each other. There is no free gas in there. And if you do a chest X-ray on somebody, you do this to diagnose abdominal problems because you do a chest X-ray with someone upright and you can see where their diaphragm is and you can see a bubble of gas forming under the diaphragm. And that's always pathological. It shows that they've had some kind of rupture of one of their internal organs, or that a nice surgeon has been in there and done something recently and left some gas in there. Because when we do laparoscopic surgery, when they put a camera in, actually what you do is to put a a needle in and you blow up the person's abdomen with carbon dioxide and inflate their tummy so that it lifts the abdominal wall away from the internal organs. And that way, when you put your instruments in to start with, you don't do damage and you also create space for yourself in which to work. And you use carbon dioxide because it's easy for that to be reabsorbed into the body. It dissolves back in your body fluids and then it it disappears off through your lungs. Peter? Uh, Isn't there something called peritonitis? Isn't that something where there's an infection within the abdomen? What is that? Well, peritonitis is where you have infected the layers around your peritoneum. Your peritoneal cavity is your abdominal cavity and if things get out of your intestines and into that space, they set up peritonitis, inflammation there. You can also get chemical inflammation of the peritoneal space. But uh, on the whole, that's always pathological and and it can also be because of, say, cancer that can do that too. Doug? Just quickly, because we have two physicists in in the room here, I think we would point out that the vast majority of things in our body are in fact empty space between the the nucleus and the electron. So we are mostly not there at all. I thought you were going to say like in some people's heads there's quite a lot of that <laughs> as well. You're, you're, if you're, you're a, a non-adopted country's new, newly elected president has, has something going on in that department. Doesn't I can he? see a theme developing here. <laughs> but Just so the audience knows, I am British now. Okay, so <laughs> to to, to summarise the question, um, what's inside our body? Well, the answer is that there is no free space, there's no wasted space, and it's largely fluid and things all in apposition with each other, but where you do end up with a hole or something that's not there, you sometimes get a bubble of gas and doctors can spot that and they know when they see that that there is something going wrong. Georgia, Luke has asked this rather provocative question. Is there any evidence that animals become aroused while watching others of their species do what comes naturally to them to reproduce, let's say? 
do as they do on the Discovery Channel. Actually, they do use footage of pandas mating in zoos because pandas are notoriously difficult to get to breed in captivity. And this has had mixed results. There was one study where they got um, monkeys, which are a, a social species, Male monkeys will sacrifice their fruit juice privileges to look at a picture of a female monkey's rear quarters, rear hindquarters. So there's some evidence that there is some... So let me just get this straight. They do an experiment where you're offered a choice between a monkey's bum and some fruit juice. Yes, and the monkeys choose the, the bum almost all the time. And um, so this shows that they at least that species values that image. But in terms of watching animals copulate... Humans are a very visual species, but it's easy to forget that most of our animals rely on a whole different host of cues as their major turn-ons, I suppose, so smells and sounds and movements. So in general, it's probably mainly a human trait. I'll bear that in mind. We have a question that's come in for you, Doug, and Heath says, I wanted to ask Doug if he thinks there's enough in the press about what the ordinary person can do to help to slow down the resources we use and to help to reduce the global warming effect, e.g. working from home a couple of days a week, buy British produce, put your clothes on uh, on the washing line, maybe just put some clothes on and turn the heating down a bit as well is, is good advice, isn't it? And the one thing I'd like to throw into that mix, which is that whenever you hear people talking about climate change and the pressure on resources, is people never say the P word. They never talk about the fact that if there were not 7.2 billion people on Earth and rising, there wouldn't be a problem. So what do you think? Yeah, we've packed a lot of questions in there. Um, when I was born, there were 2.5 billion people on the Earth. If, if, And I'm not that old. Is that um, back when you had your first brontosaurus? Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. When I heard that fact, I fell off my dinosaur. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so if we were to go back to, to that number of people, problem sorted. Every time we discuss this at the conference of the parties meetings on climate change, it gets into a big argument between the United States saying, well, you, China, produce more CO2, and China saying, but we have more people, and the United States saying, well, but you are producing more CO2, and and back and forth. So population has been on the table for a long time. People worry about it because it, I mean, worry about discussing it simply because it causes such discord between the uh, uh, developed and the developing well, nations. It's a hard nut to crack, isn't it? Because you basically got to tell people. People, how many kids they can have, which has yeah, always been yeah. something people have regarded as a sort yeah, of almost in, God-given right, isn't it? In, in the U.S., I used to go around to, uh, to churches and, and give these presentations. And um, every time I would talk about climate and talk about all sorts of mitigation measures, which is what the first half of the question was, um, everybody was fine. The minute I talked about population control, the response was uniformly, God will tell me how many children to have. You know, and I just learned to back away from that. What can we do to make the the, the changes? Uh, the example I always use is on the on the 7th of March, 2008 at 7.05 a.m., my carbon footprint went down by 60%. And I always ask people, well, what happened? And what happened was that's the time at which my wife and myself and our son migrated from the U.S. to here. And my life in Cambridge is just as good as my life in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, but it's 60 percent less co2 smaller house we don't drive a car because you can't really drive one in, in cambridge and and so forth so the, those are the things make your house smaller make your house a little bit cooler in the winter and so on is it cooler in the winter do you mean like fairy lights christmas lights that kind of thing <laughs> georgia well speaking of christmas actually that is like if you think about reducing the amount of waste christmas has so many things that we just throw away immediately think about crackers 
you pull them and they immediately go in the bin. Wrapping paper, so much paper that just is there to look nice. So things like recycled, it sounds so boring, recycle your wrapping paper and things like that. But, but you raise a good point about wrapping paper because I was pretty horrified when I just, I just didn't put the bin out for a couple of days at home. And... I looked at how much packaging, like plastic packaging, that you know everything. You cannot buy something these days without it coming with impenetrable layers of plastic packaging. Well, what's with that? Yeah, the Germans started about twenty-five, thirty years ago when I was living there. They changed that quite a bit. So you would actually take the pa- there wouldn't be much packaging, and you would take off the packaging before you left the supermarket. So that way, then you. I mean, obviously, you're taking a risk then that you'll damage an item on the way home. But but the re- the reduction packaging. I assume they're still doing it, was considerable compared with other countries. So, Doug, just to wrap up the question then, could you give us a little checklist of, say, your top five tips for what Heath and, and the average person can do to cut their carbon footprint? Well, the, the, the biggest one by far is is how much temperature you have in your house. And turn the thermostat down if you even have a thermostat, you know, three or four degrees C temperature drop. Number two, don't do what I do, which is fly all over the world to lecture people about how they can <laughs> reduce their carbon change. footprint. You know? <laughs> I think St. Peter and I are going to have a conversation about that at, at, at some point in time. I mean, number three is consumption patterns. And ultimately, I think people need to understand that they are the ones driving this system. You know, quit blaming the producers, the companies, the countries that produce this stuff. We turn that system on every time we consume refrigerators, computers, and so forth. That's not five, but it's three. Doug's top three. Thank you, Doug. Uh, David says, Peter, um, my question is, is wireless energy transfer also more energy efficient due to less power lost in cables? Or is it less efficient because extra energy needs to be supplied to beam out the electricity? In other words, would my electricity bill go up or down if I were to change all of my outlets to wireless? Uh, very, very much the latter, as I'll explain in a minute. But first of all, of course, wireless charging, we are already starting to use. Many of us have toothbrushes that are wireless charged. Uh, all, almost, I think all smart fo- watches are wireless charging in order to keep them to be waterproof. Uh, some phones get wireless charging at the moment. So we are moving that way. The power comes into domestic property through the consumer unit. We can't all end up <laughs> bunched around the consumer unit collecting our power from that. So the power has to get out in wires around the house. So presumably we're taking it from the point when it comes through the wall. And from there, instead of plugging something into it using effectively copper and copper connection, you have wireless. The wireless part of it means converting a the, the AC signal, the AC power, through to radio frequency and then back again and if you take this sort of i'm sure it's getting better but at the moment you're losing about five percent converting it to radio frequency and back again so that's ten percent you're losing about eleven percent in actually convert through the air losses there so you're losing of the order of twenty percent so if you take twenty percent as the amount you lose how does that compare with the amount of cable that you're going to plug into it? And you get some crazy, crazy numbers here. So if you're running a full 13 amps out of that, you would need a cable that was 140 metres long to be equivalent to the loss you've got through the air. And that gets massively worse. If you actually put a phone charger in there, and you, instead of the phone charger you put RF, you'd need a cable from from that point there, 100 kilometres long, <laughs> would lose the same amount of energy. So... No is the answer. In a very I was going to say, it sounds like a no from Peter on that one. <laughs> 98% of our genome is doing other stuff and we don't have that understanding of what a sequence change means because there's no code that tells us. In this month's Naked Genetics, we're delving into the junk in the genome, or rather, our non-coding DNA. 
Less than 2% of the human genome contains genes, so what does all the rest do? Plus, a spooky gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. We have a few minutes left to answer a couple more questions, including this one from Chris. Consider a room lined with mirrors with no windows and the lights off. You stand in the middle of the room. It's dark. You turn on the lights. The room lights up. Then you turn them off. Why does it go dark again? Why doesn't the light from the lights just infinitely bounce around the room, keeping the room lit by the infinite reflection of the lights? This is a great question. I love this. The thing you've got to realise is that mirrors aren't 100% efficient. A typical mirror will only reflect 90% of the light that falls on it. You can get, you know, better quality ones that will reflect more. But say your mirror reflects 90% of the light. That means 10% of the light is absorbed on every reflection. And that goes into, you know, heat the mirror up and that sort of thing. So if you're going to reduce the amount of light by, say, well, to say one part in a billion of what you started with, that will only take 200 reflections. So the light bounces backwards and forwards 200 times, and you're already down to less than one part in a billion of the light you started with. Now, if you've got a typical size room like this studio we're in, it's a few meters across, the light bouncing backwards and forwards 200 times would take maybe two microseconds, two millionths of a second. So within two millionths of a second, the lights bounce backwards and forwards 200 times, and you're down to one part in a billion. That's why it gets dark. Andrew, thank you. Right, we're up to the end of the programme. One more to sneak in. This one's for you, Georgia, to take us up to the end. It's from Florence. Is there any actual proof that vampires exist? So, what do you think? Uh, so, the short answer here is no. There's no evidence for the sort of the storybook creatures which uh, drink your blood and hate garlic and only come out at night. But there are a lot of animals uh, who do drink blood. Blood is an excellent source of proteins and lipids, so it's a it's a nice sort of meal on tap, as it were, for a lot of animals. So we've got mosquitoes, leeches. There are even some birds that drink the blood from other birds, which I had no idea about. Well, how uh, do they get the blood? Do they go and peck at them? They, yeah, there's a very small, I think it might be a finch, I might be wrong, uh, that lands on a bird called the booby, and it just kind of pecks on its back. And apparently if it's... Um, the boobies kind of lets it get away with it, but if it's too greedy, the booby will chase it away. <laughs> chase it away under any circumstances. Does it do this uh, all the time, or, or is it like the mosquito, where the female is the one that seeks out the blood meal because it's rich in protein when she needs to lay eggs? I think it happens when more when food is scarce. I, th- I don't think it's its sole diet is blood. but um, And in terms of vampiric animals, like there's the vampire bat as well. Thinking about when they bite you, you turn into a vampire. This this doesn't happen for any animals, but when you bite blood, you transfer a lot of blood-borne diseases, so things like malaria. Rabies. Rabies, exactly, and um, that's arguably a lot worse than turning into an immortal vampire. But there's actually some really interesting research, and it might imply that maybe vampirism is a good idea in the future. What scientists have done is they got old mice and young mice and sort of done a mutual blood transfer. And they found out that the old mice, they got smarter, they looked younger, they tended to do better on all the tests. And the young mice started to, to, to mess up a bit and, and seem a bit older. They think there might be the growth factors in the blood of younger animals that if transferred to older animals, they can then reap a benefit. And they're actually looking into this for treating Alzheimer's. Not so good for the young animal, though, which accelerates its ageing, is it? Yes, but you'd hope in that if they did it with humans, they wouldn't then transfer the old blood into the younger creatures and just do a simple donation. 
Georgia Mills, thank you very much, and thank you to our other guests this week, Andrew Norton, Doug Crawford-Brown, and Peter Cowley. The producer was Greer Jackson. Now, next week, we'll be navigating our way to the Royal Institute of Navigation Conference, which took place in Glasgow. We'll be finding out how space scientists plan missions to Mars and other planets and make sure they get there. We'll also hear how driverless cars will be finding their way around in future and how our own brains know where we are. That's coming up next week. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, from me and the Naked Scientist crew, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.